Welcome to Valentine's Weekend, and I trust you uh, had a good evening out last night if you have a spouse or a friend, and uh, we are going to focus on that four-letter word, love, L-O-V-E, and we are going to talk about the call to choose love. Choose love, and we're going to see how that word for love is associated with this table. One of uh, the first few poems I remember ever memorizing had to do with L-O-V-E. Back in my early years, it was sort of a, a humorous poem. Actually, there's a couple of them. It goes like this. Love is like an onion. You taste it with delight. But once it's gone, you wonder whatever made you bite. Love is a funny thing. It's just like a lizard. It curls up around your heart and then jumps into your gizzard. Love is swell. It's so enticing. It's orange gel. It's strawberry icing. It's chocolate mousse. It's roasted goose. It's ham on rye. It's banana pie. Love's all good things without a question. In other words, it's indigestion. And part of the reason that we smile and laugh at such a thing is we know that to be true. How many times, you know, you are either made or broken by L-O-V-E. And uh, so many times, more often than not, it can become an indigestion kind of feeling. The other one is like this. Slippery ice, very thin, pretty girl, tumbles in. Saw a boy on the bank, gave a shriek, then she sank. Boy on hand, heard her shout, jumps right in, pulls her out. Now she's his, very nice, but she had to break the ice. <laughs> I think all of us can uh, be endeared to something like that because it calls us back to the first love or that first moment maybe of infatuation. And what kind of guy wouldn't want to gallantly go and save a girl, whether it's from a burning building or slippery ice, whatever it may be. But our minds are called back to some of the initial interest maybe we had or even where we're uh, finding ourselves even this very morning. There's a professor put together some list of lyrics concerning country western love songs. Here's a few. If love were oil, I'd be a court low. My wife ran off with my best friend. I sure do miss him. I want to hear that song. If the phone don't ring, baby, you'll know it's me. (laughs) And I fell in a pile of you and got love all over me. Uh, Love is a very interesting thing, is it not? Whether it's uh, indigestion or uh, it's a wild romantic passion that's going on. I think one of the interesting things for us when we focus on that L-O-V-E is that in our culture, we really do have a hard time defining it. And one of the reasons is because of our language. Do you realize that we just have one word for the word love? Love. Now you can change three letters there and make it the word like, but like is different than love. Like Like's a preference. Love, in the Greek though, and some of you are familiar with this, there's four different words in the Greek that describe the word love. Here's three of them. The first is eros. Eros means passion or infatuation, as well as sexual or romantic love. So if you're reading through a Greek New Testament and the word eros is there, you know it's giving reference to that kind of L-O-V-E. 
The second is storge, which refers to the natural affection between a parent and a child. And we can all identify with that. And then phileo. Phileo refers to the intimacy uh, that good friends share together. Philadelphia comes from phileo, right? City of friendship, love. All right? So those are three common ways that you say, I love you. You know, I, I, there's passion, there's romance, there's infatuation, right? There's, there's this eros going on inside of us. Then there's storge, when a parent holds a child and is endeared towards the love that's there. I just love you. I storge you. And then there's like, hey, man, high five. We're hanging. We're having a really good time. It was a nice, fun night out with a bunch of friends. And you say, man, I just love you guys. Phileo. But then there's the fourth word in the Greek language, and that is agape. And agape means this. It is sacrificial love, a commitment that motivates us to deny ourselves on behalf of another. This is the type of love the Lord had in mind when he commanded his followers to love one another. It's also the kind of love that needs to be carried over into every other relationship that we have. The romance, the infatuation, the passion will wear off. Does that mean you no longer love the person? Your children may disappoint you. Your parents may disappoint you. I hate you, I want to say. Do you really? Well, you don't want to say I love you because, well, that, that sense of, you know, natural affection seems to be gone. And then what about friendships? Maybe broken friendships, somebody that's, you know, been your friend for a long time and then things happen and it's fallen apart and you sit here this morning and that relationship is broken. You can't really say phileo anymore to them. But I do believe that in all these situations, we can come back to the word agape and say, I agape you. Because agape is going beyond the feelings. It's going beyond the natural affections. It's going beyond a sense of intimacy that's shared during good times. Agape is a choice. And that's where I think in our culture we fall greatly short. Because we define love by feeling and emotion rather than by choice, action, and the will. So I can say to you, I love you, even though we may not be doing very good together on a personal, even friendship level. Can you picture Jesus? Jesus was trying to come into this world, a broken, fallen, hateful world, a world that we still see around us, a world that we experience, a world that we watch on the news. In fact, the world cries out, would somebody do something with the messes that we find? We need love in this world, right? Well, what kind of love do we need in this world? The love that we need is the love that Jesus brought. There is a love, an agape that has an origin that the world needs and you and I need. And it has an origin in the heavens, in the Father. And so when the scriptures say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son... It wasn't like, oh, you know, maybe he was, you know, giving high fives. I'm so excited about everybody, what they're doing down there. He probably 
had more of that brokenness, saying, I am going to sacrifice for the people I created in their sin because I agape them. And here was Jesus trying to teach his disciples. He'd gather his disciples around. They were pushed back and forth by all kinds of of winds of philosophy and, and the pop culture around them even in that day. And he gathers them, and he gathers them together, and he begins to explain to them something that he's going to do. But they don't quite fully understand uh, what he's going to do. And he comes to them and he sits with them. This is shortly before the cross. And he speaks these intimate words into their life. You can picture Jesus himself seated maybe with you in this moment. His countenance is tender. His gestures are gracious. The tone of his voice is endearing and caring. And his posture is one of strength. And he leans into them and he shares these words with them. Words are some of the most beautiful words ever spoken by Jesus in the discourse in John leading up towards the cross. He says this, I am the true vine and my father the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As surely as the abide in me and I in you, he says, you are the branches. I am the vine. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I lost my track there. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. For by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then he leans into him and he says this. Just as the Father has loved me, so also I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But all things that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he give to you. This I command you, love one another. Now, in that discourse, and we're going to come back to it and walk through it verse by verse and, and not mess up like some I just did, um, there is this incredible... Um, infinite 
mystical reality that Jesus is trying to paint to his followers concerning the origins of love, the operation of love, and the ongoing working out of love. And unless we dial into what that understanding of L-O-V is, then our love will be short, it will be quick on the trigger, it will be multiplied many times, but it will not have the endearing long-term effect that Jesus desired for love to have. And when it comes to Valentine's Day, shoot, you know, you need the love that's going to last and build forever. So it's not the, the eros or the storge or the phileo. It's the agape love. So Jesus, give it to me. I want to know what this love is. And he says, I came from this love, from the Father. I am passing it on to you, and you are to demonstrate it one with another. But in our pop culture, time and again, that love is not seen as the agape love. Thornton Wilder, a playwriter, he writes this. I like this. He says, I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults. And the promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married And it was the promise that made the marriage. And when our children were growing up, it wasn't a house that protected them. And it wasn't our love that protected them. It was that promise. And that promise is to abide, to be with, to lay down your life. Jesus came to demonstrate that love from the heavens to get it flowing, if you will, more on the horizontal level in this world. And we still struggle after 2,000 years trying to get it. But one of the things that's very important for us to do is to move away from the concept that love is a mere feeling and understand that it is this action. Now, uh, granted, uh, it's both. I don't like the idea of, oh, it's just, you know, just suck it up, love them, tough it out, sacrifice, that kind of thing. There is wonder and excitement filled with love. Emotion is a part of love. But you can sort of see it this way. In a marriage, marriage that's all emotion and no will is a mockery. But marriage that is mere emotion with no will. I mean, it's, it's just the will with no emotion is mere drudgery. And so they go hand in hand, the emotion and the will. But sometimes the emotion dissipates. You may turn to your wife this morning or your uh, loved one friend that might be with you and say, you know, I love you and you have some endearing emotion going on when you say that, right? Or you may look at them and you go, I guess I have to love you because we're in this together, Right? There was the other humorous thing, maybe. I don't can't recall if I ever told you. It's two uh, elderly people that they were in a, a retirement center, and she was really hard of hearing, and uh, he wanted to really make her day special. And so she had this long face, and so he leaned sort of across the way to her, and he said, I'm so proud of you. And she said, What would you say? He says, I'm so proud of you. He scowled at him and said, why do you say? 
I'm so proud of you. And she looked back in at him and said, well, I'm getting tired of you too. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit of the, the will and not the emotions, the drudgery kind of side of a wedding, right? But I think it's important for us because how many times, and it's in counseling situations I work with, not just in marriage counseling situations, but also in friendships that have broken apart, where a person, an individual will say, well, I just don't love them anymore. And I always say, what do you mean by that? I just don't have feelings for them anymore, usually. Or I don't care to take initiative to care and love for them anymore. I'm just done. But the promise that God gave for us, the promise which provides the sanctity of our home and the encouragement not only of our children but of a marriage and also a love even in a church community one for another, establishes that protection through a commitment. I will love. That's why when you have marriage vows, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, until death do us part. That's the promise. And that's what Wilder is saying, that that promise is what provides the protection in a home. But the moment that you start to, especially in a marriage, I think throw out the D word, the divorce word, or I think there's an escape out of this, everything starts to crumble because there's no longer this affirmation that no matter what I say, no matter what I do, you are still going to be with me and we are going to work through this. And so love breaks down on all different kinds of fronts if we do not anchor it well in the agape love that comes from the Heavenly Father and that he gives to us. I want us to take a look at these passages in uh, John 15. If you have your scripture, you can turn there. You can look off um, the slide here. It says this, just as the Father, after he talks about the abiding in the vine, and that's part of the mystical stuff. How is this connected? I'm connected in the vine to God. In fact, if you were to study through... um, this section of scripture in these several chapters here, it's like over 30 times uh, in a certain section of 18 verses, I think, that the word love is used. And the word love is in the agape framework. And so here's Jesus. She's like, what does Jesus know? He was never married, right? He was 30. And then when he started ministry, he died when he was 33. He doesn't know anything about love. Why is he teaching on love? Well, he knows what love is from the Father, and he lived love amongst us. And as we come to the table, we'll see uh, and be reminded again of that love and how he laid his life down for us. So Jesus has a lot to say about love in the context of John uh, 13 through 16. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, if we start right there, just as. The word just as, by the way, is another key phrase. It's used over and again in the Gospel of John as a connection point. This is connected to that's connected to that's connected. So Jesus sees the whole concept of love, if we're to experience love, if we're to give love, if we're to abide in love, as connected all the way back to the Father. And so he says, just as the Father has loved me, connection point, so I have loved you. I have received this love and I can only pass this love on to you because that's who I am. All right? 
Jesus being God himself, yes, God the Son, but he experienced this love and the, the beauty of the community of the uh, Trinity, this love abounded in the heavenly realms. Otherwise, there would be no love on earth. We'd all be robots. There would be no emotions and feelings. We are made in the image of God, and being made in the image of God means that we have the capacity to love and exchange and give love back and forth. So also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity, there's this ongoing working of love that's just playing its way out. So when we are made, when we are born in the image of God, God puts this capacity within us to be relational human beings. And you cannot live your life without being relational. I read this week somebody has tried to live their whole life, she was in her 40s or something, without smiling because she wanted to keep her face from getting wrinkles. (laughs) And she's actually accomplished this, right? And I'm like, how do you do that? So you might not, you know, need Botox when you're later on, but my goodness, you are not a very enjoyable person to communicate and be around if you don't smile some. But she's been doing it. Even I think she got married even through a wedding. She didn't smile. And I'm like, okay, great. you got good skin, you know, no Botox needed kind of deal. But I'm like, how do you do that? And so there's this capacity for us, just as surely as you would have a capacity to smile and interaction with people, you'd have this capacity to be in relationship. So you can't lock yourself away from people and find fulfillment and meaning. Why? Because you're not a robot. You were made in the image of God, this capacity to love. Why is solitary confinement one of the worst punishments ever? Because we are relational human beings, all right? So Jesus is saying, just as the Father has loved me in this capacity of love, so I have loved you. And then there's this exhortation to abide in my love. Do you remember when you first fell in love? Or maybe... You've recently fallen in love, so you're right there in the middle of it right now. What do you think about night and day? You think about that person. You think fond thoughts about them. You also are worried about maybe what they're thinking about you, right? Your mind is stayed upon this relationship. You are abiding in the love relationship that has been newfound in your life. And so to abide in his love is for us to take time like we're here to do today and lean into an understanding of what the L-O-V word is, L-O-V-E word is. Just as the fathers loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, he's just not going to hang it out there and say, just do it, uh, whatever abide means. He's going to say how you abide. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, does that start to sound like a lot of labor and work or legalism there? For some people, it probably could. But you've got to understand, there was such a love that the son had back towards the father that he wanted to please him and do what? Do his will at every turn. So the commandments that Jesus fulfilled in order to abide in the father's love was to do the will of the father. So when we have scriptures, and scriptures outlines for us clearly how we are to live our life, it doesn't do that to kill your joy and to steal your love. Because when you live in accordance with the commandments of the Father and the commandments of the Son, then you will find yourself abiding in his love and his pleasure. And so if you feel, this is very key, If you feel distant from God in your life, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, 
then I encourage you, if you want to get that love and feeling back, just go back to some of the simple commands that Jesus told us that we need to do. All right? Now, I won't go into a litany of all those. We'll be here forever, right? But he was very clear in his instruction. All right? Love God. Love your neighbor. Serve people. Encourage one another. All right? Seek him. These are commandments, all right, that he gives us. Help the poor. Reach out to the downtrodden, the orphan, the neglected, all right, the widow. Oh, I can't do them all. (laughs) You can't do them all. But start just being obedient to a few of the commandments because as you're obedient to the commandments, it will lead you into abiding into the love of the Father and the pleasure of him. I often say this. In fact, I think I said it to staff the other day. I find Jesus very easy to live with. I know some people maybe you feel that, you know, ah, he's pretty hard to live up to. And he takes great delight in me as his disciple. God takes great delight in me as his child. And I find God very easy to live with. But that doesn't mean that you just say, hey, do whatever you want to do. He has certain ways, just as a parent does with a child, that he wants to see us to go. And so Jesus is saying, if you keep my commandments, you're going to abide in my love. And I have done this from the Father. So just as I did this with the Father, I'm now bringing it into this relationship. And then one of my favorite verses, these things I have spoken to you so that your life may be miserable (laughs) and that you will never have any fun. No, it says what? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You're right. There is no way to have joy in life without having love in life. But there's no way to really have ultimate love in life unless you're living a life in obedience and accord with how God created us and designed us to live, which was in relationship with him. So it goes on from this in verse 12. It says this. This is my commandment then, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Oh, wait a second. Here's one of those just as kind of things. So here's the Father in heaven uh, created us, has this capacity of love. He passes that love onto the Son. The Son enters this world, and the Son loves on the disciples around Him and the followers of Him. And then He turns right around after He says, Hey, keep my commandments. He says, Here's one up for you. My commandment is this that you love one another. How? Just as He has loved us. So you go from the Father to the Son to each one of us, and each one of us to one another. The reason we don't do a very good job of loving one another, though, I think you can trace it all the way back to an understanding of what's love. Is love a feeling or is love an action? Is it mere eros, storge, and phileo, or is it agape love? And let's pass the agape love on down. And when we choose to love other people, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to like them. We choose to love sometimes even when we don't like. We mentioned this last week, and some of you really picked up on the whole the idea that we don't have to be lifestyle referees of other people. In other words, you can accept people without approving what they do. So also you can love people without necessarily liking everything about them and what they do but you are having a commitment and a devotion to them. And then how does he describe this kind of love, Jesus? 
Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Now, when he said that statement, did they know what was going to happen to Jesus at that time? No. They had no idea he was going to be placed on a cruel Roman cross and be crucified shortly. But he gave it as a general term, like, hey, man, you really want to talk about somebody that loves you and cares for you? They'll lay their life down for you. They lay your life down. And he was about to demonstrate that. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, or the word there is, is a, it's a word that actually does mean slave, but not in the sense that we think of slavery. It's more of a bonded, indentured servant. For the slave, the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This is an incredible thing. You've got to understand, Jesus was a rabbi, and <clears throat> rabbis had servants. So the idea that Jesus then began to teach his students, his servants, his doulos, the indentured slaves, that they weren't just going to be servants of him as a rabbi, but that they were friends on more of a horizontal uh, basis was huge deal. It's like, what? So, so you're just not our teacher, you're not just our rabbi, and eventually they discover that you are the Lord, that he's inviting them into a fellowship, a communion, a friendship with him that has been undefined before in those kind of circles. And he says that all these <clears throat> things I've, I, I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. If you had anybody that's not very good at keeping a secret, and you know that, so you just don't tell them anything, right? And so, but this is the kind of thing where Jesus is saying, you know, what I hear from the Father, I'm not keeping this as some type of protected language. I am passing this on to you because I want you who are here to be in communion with me because I'm in communion with the Father and we are one. And this starts to do some of that mystical understanding, abide in me and I in you, and that day you'll know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. This is beyond our human comprehension. But God has something in the chemistry of how he's created us and the world that allows us to be bond in what's called a mystical union with Christ. It's some of what sometimes referred to as the deeper life in Christ. And when I get around a study, and not just a study, but a reflection in my own personal life, that I am a friend of God, that I am a friend of Jesus, and Jesus uh, not only uh, walks beside me, but he lives within me. And because he lives within me, and because of what he's done, I am in him, and then I am back in the Father. There's something mystical about all this that starts to blow me away and starts to call me out going, Whoa, this is, this is beyond just these human relationships we have where, you know, it's just skin to skin and, 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 and a conversation to conversation. There is something deep and rich in this. And Jesus is saying, I want you a part of that kind of relationship. I want you abiding in me as the branch abides in the vine because this is not some secret club. You get to know what the Father's will and desire and design is. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series on discovering God's will. That's always a big question for all of us. It's like, you know, well, how do you discover God's will? I'm very confused about that. I really need to know God's will within this. Well, you need to know this. In the heart of God, it's not, he's not playing, you know, a hide-and-seek kind of game with this, or I got you one, I'm holding it back, right? Sometimes he delays to reveal his will to us for various reasons and understood. But God desires for us to know his heart. 
And when we're in this communion with him, he desires for us to discover his very will and nature. He is not a distant absentee landlord. This is all, you know, we bring up, uh, you know, being able to pray and reach the Muslim world a lot because it's in the news. But, you know, one of the most powerful, incredible things I think you could ever teach and show someone from a a Muslim background, and, and maybe there's people here from that background, is this, that Jesus, God, we'll just start with God because they don't think Jesus is God. We'll just go with God. God is love. Of all the words that describe their God, not one time does the Quran reference God as love. So when you're dealing with this kind of passage, all right, God is somebody to be feared for them, revered for them. There's, you know, your prayers you have to say, but the concept that God would love you. And part of the reason that that's not felt or, or believed is because that's um, diminishing God. He's too much other. But God is not so other that he is not present with us. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, right? But that's blasphemous to someone uh, out of a Muslim faith, all right? That God would become among us? No, he's too distant out there. You cannot, I think, cultivate a deep and rich personal faith life without understanding the depth and the riches of some of this love language that God the Father to the Son to you to one another. All right? Now I know that's a little bit around about on a few things there, but I just almost want to call you into the mysticism of it and not get it all clearly delineated. Because as you cultivate your relationship with God, he's going to reveal to you beauty and uh, ways of his endearment towards you you've never known before. It goes on then and says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Sometimes I think we uh, find ourselves, if we've become followers of Christ, as thinking that we picked on Jesus like you pick on uh, placing a bet on a winning horse. I think I'm going to pick Jesus. I'm going to go with him. He looks like the best option in the race of all the religions, and I I think I'll just sort of pick him and and go that way. And see see if I I can ride this out to be a winner. Question. Do you really pick Jesus? That's really not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that God so loved the world. He created you, yes, but then he redeemed you. God is the one who has picked you and picked me. And so when it says this, you did not choose me. This is Jesus. He's sitting there in this endearing time with his disciples. Guys, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I chose you to go around and sit in church on Sunday morning and then have great weeks. No, I chose you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you in alignment with the will. What is the fruit that he's asking them to bear? It's the fruit of L-O-V-E, the fruit of love, to love one another. 
You see, the series we just came through with Just Walk Across the Room, it really all falls apart if we can't get a grip that L-O-V-E is really spelled G-I-V-E, give. We give. And as we give our lives away in love to other people, we find the joy of the Lord. We find the fulfillment in our own life. We receive the love of the Father himself. It's sort of paradoxical. You give your life away to find it, Jesus says. So I put it together with this exhortation that comes from Corinthians. That's why Paul's able to say this. L-O-V-E, what is it? It's action. It's not feeling. Action and not feeling means that when we, on Valentine's weekend, decide to turn to our spouse or our friend or a loved one and say, be my Valentine or I love you, we are coming back to these kinds of action statements that the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we begin to come and prepare to take the elements. Here's Jesus with his disciples describing what love is. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he came and he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us in a measure that's not just one that redeems us, that justifies us for our sins, but he laid his life down not to prove his love for us, but to demonstrate his love for us. And so as we begin to worship again and when we focus around the opportunity to take the elements of, of his body that was broken and the cup that represents his shed blood on our behalf, it's really representing his demonstration of love. And we then are responding to that demonstration of love by choosing to love him because he first chose to love us. This is a response relationship. It's not us trying to grab a hold of God and make things happen. He has chosen to love us and he demonstrated his love for us. He did not have to prove it because he brought that love from the heavenly realms, from the Father. I'm reminded of a story I heard about a mother who was caught uh, stranded in a snowstorm with her daughter. Maybe one of those big storms like they're having number four out in New England this weekend. And somehow they got stranded, I don't know if it was the hills or whatever, and they couldn't find their way where they needed to be, and darkness was sitting in, and so figured that you know, they were going to have to bunker in for the night outside in the elements. And so they huddled together in the coldness, uh, subdery, uh, uh, freezing degrees. And um, they tried to keep each other warm, but that only worked for a certain amount of time. So then what the mother did was she laid her daughter down and, and she laid on top of her daughter and tried to arrange herself on her body and with her clothes in such a way that it would protect her daughter through the night. Well, the next morning when they were found, the mom was found dead. But the daughter was alive. Why? 
because her mother agaped her and laid down her life. It was a demonstration of her love to protect her daughter. And I never grow tired of coming to a table when I pause to remember what Christ did for us. He laid down his life. He gave up all that he had in the thrones of heaven to come to live amongst us, broken, weary, unloving people. And he chose to love us and laid down his life so that we could love him. Just as the Father has loved me. If you were to put these verses together, verse 9, 13, and 17. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. <laughs> Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This I command you, that you love one another. Because of the Father's love, Jesus knew love. Jesus takes that love. He shows us that love. And then he commands us to love one another. Take this song. Just prepare your hearts for communion as we come around the table to partake of the elements. And then I'll pray. And then you can come.